Well, let me ask you a question. Did you know that you can go to the website, on the internet, or you can find places that will, will give you a list of what is known as one-hit wonders? Are you familiar with that? You know, they're, they're usually talented and gifted people who are authors, musicians, they could be composers or artists, who have become known, not for their body of work, but for one single work. So let me give you an example of some authors. J.D. Salinger. Anybody remember? Say it loud. Catch of the rye. Right. How about who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird? Harper Lee. Incredible book. No other works. Let's list some musicians, okay, and see if you can name the work. And I'm going to start with the youth to begin with. I'll be surprised if some of us who are older will understand this. But from the year 2000, with their one hit called Absolutely, subtitled Story of a Girl. You know that one. This is Story of a Girl who cried a river and drowned the whole world, right? Do you know who wrote it, though? Nine days. Whoa. Impressive. Someone got it. 19... 82, the Weather Girls wrote this song. It's raining men, hallelujah. It's, it's a biblical song. Um, they're one hit wonder. 1970, there's a song called The House of the Rising Sun. You know who sung that? I'd be really impressed. Frigid Pink, that well known group next to the Beatles. All the way back in 1955, a hit, Crimea River, was sung by Julie London. Now, lots of other people sung it, but she, that was her one hit wonder. Two more, one from the Roaring Twenties, written by Milton Ager. Um, and so do you know the song? It was actually made popular and sung again in the 1940s by Mr. Ford and Mr. Goonbones. And I got to say, just when I saw those names, I thought to myself, don't make fun of names like P. Diddy and Lady Gaga, those of you in the 40s. Because Milton Ager wrote this song for his daughter. Ain't she sweet? Oh. Okay. Let me give you the last one-hit wonder that you should all know. Written some 700 years before the birth of Christ. Later adapted into a Christmas carol about a little town. Do you know who the author was? We've been studying this book for the last five, six weeks. Wow, you guys are sharp. And the song? The Little Town of Bethlehem. For years, until recently, because Micah now is becoming known for a number of other hits. But for years, Michael was a one-hit prophetic wonder. His contemporary Isaiah had all kinds of hits found in the New Testament. You could read all kinds of verses quoted. Micah has one. It's found at a time when the wise men are coming through and they're looking for the the Messiah. And they come before King Herod asking, where is this king to be born? Which makes Herod a little bit nervous. So Herod, knowing that he doesn't know much about God's word, goes to the chief priests and he goes to the teachers of the laws and he says to them, you know, where's this king supposed to be born, this guy, this Messiah? And they say, oh, easy. Micah, 5-2. It says, oh, little town of Bethlehem. As they probably sang it. Probably not. Anyway. And I wonder, when I thought about this and was preparing this, do you think Micah thought that those words would be his one-hit wonder? 
that they would have such a significant impact throughout history. I mean, Micah didn't just write this. He had preached and taught all kinds of things in Jerusalem and around the surrounding countryside of Israel. He compiled and some others with him this book, Micah, and he put some of the best of his best thoughts in there. And I don't think he probably thought that this would be the key thing that he would be known for. So I want you to think for a second. How about you? Have you ever considered the fact that maybe there are some things that you've already said or even actually done? Small expressions of love, maybe words of encouragement, maybe prayers offered up for someone that you will look back someday, you don't even know right now, but someday those will be so significant and they are so significant in someone's life. Who knows what a body of people like Wyzetta Free could be engaged in and through their expressions of love and following this, this, this incredibly undescribable, incomprehensible, uncommon God decide to in faith walk this uncommon walk that expresses this incredible, incomprehensible love to the community around them, begins to reach out and touch and heal and, and allows God to work through them that we might just not even realize the impact until someday what God is doing. Because a lot of times you just don't realize it. Did you know that, that after Abraham Lincoln had given his address at Gettysburg, that small little speech, he got done and the guy before him who had spoke, Evan, who was the Harvard president, who was one of the greatest orators of his day, spoke for over two hours. People got up and cheered and they were just you know, um, responding. Well, Lincoln gives his address. He gets done and the people are silent. There's not a word. And Lincoln's confused. These people are, in a sense, stunned by what he has just said. Lincoln turns around and he says to Ward Lamon, who's sitting next to him, Lamon, that speech won't scour. It's a flat failure and the people are disappointed. I have to tell you, we are poor judges we are really poor judges when we are in the moment of how significant something might be. Well, let's take a look at Micah chapter 5. And, and to do so, we've got to look back a little bit in chapter 4. So let me set up a little bit of this from just an exegetical scriptural standpoint. Chapters 4 and 5 begins with what I call our patterns of distress that move into a sense of deliverance. It is God's judgment and then God's hope. And it begins in chapter 4, verse 9 and verse 10. And you see the first section, you'll see this growing sense, there's this sense of, um, of greater judgment and a little bit of hope, and it seems to just grow over time in proportion to the judgment versus the hope. The first three, uh, these first nine lines in chapter 4, verse 9, are all about judgment as compared to just three lines of hope. And what God is saying here is there will be judgment, but there will be hope for you people. And I believe he's talking to people who see themselves as insignificant, who find themselves under oppression, who in their hearts are crying out for one who might deliver them. And then he goes to chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. There's another section. The second oracle is what it's called. And the proportion begins to shift here. The direction of hope begins to become larger. There are only four lines of judgment as compared to ten lines of hope. 
And it's not, not just that he's saying there's a people that, could be, that should have hope because of God. There is now hope because God has a plan and a purpose you just don't understand. His thoughts are above your thoughts. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand his plan. So have hope. And then Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. In this last section, there is only one verse, verse 1, announcing judgment. And all the rest of the verses, chapter, um, you go through chapter 5, but especially those verses 2 through 6, they announce God's deliverance. And they throw the proportion of the weight from judgment to hope. God will send a person. This people, through God's plan and through his purposes, will receive a person. And each section gets larger until it crescendos into this sense of a wonder and praise of this God who loves you and me so much that he is willing to do whatever it takes when you cry out, when you come to a place of desperation, when, when, when you hear Jesus saying, Arise, come to me, you who are weak and poor. I am here for you. I'm here for you. So as you go through this, you begin in chapter 5, verse 1, and you hear the words of God given to Micah. He begins in, in verse 1, Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. Now, I could go through, this verse is one of the most difficult verses in the Old Testament to understand. There's all kinds of, there's a couple of different ways to interpret it, but I believe this is a good interpretation. So I'm just going to leave it there. If you want to go further work on it, you can, can do that. But what he's setting up here is this, this sense of a reversal that's going to take place, because as they will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. The idea is that here is this, this king, this ruler. In fact, in Hebrew, it's the idea of Israel's judge. And he's using the word judge purposely because if you think about a judge in the Old Testament, the book of Judges was about the great deliverers of God. The judge would be this one who would be set up by God when people would go through 20, 30, 40 years of distress and eventually a deliverer would come. A Samson would step out. A Deborah would step out. And would deliver the people. And he's making almost kind of a, a little bit of a, 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 a he, he's almost insulting the ruler here in a sense. He's saying, you, O Israel, judge, who should be delivering people, who should be in faith and in a simple dependence and trust on God, who should, like this God who loves to take you who were in slavery in Egypt and set you free, who now are imprisoning through your actions and through your greed and through all the things you're doing. You have no sensitivity to those within your own country, your own people, let alone what the world is looking in it. And he basically makes his point that the strike on the cheek, to slap someone on the cheek, even today is an insult, right? Someone says something, you slap them. What he's saying here is the ruler, the judge, had a scepter. And when he used that scepter, he would actually strike someone in a sense of judgment. And he's saying, guess what? There's going to be a ruler that God's allowing to happen to come through here who will through their power, Assyria, and through Babylon, will actually do just the opposite of what you should be doing. They will strike you on the cheek with a rod. And, and he begins by getting people's attention, and especially these leaders and rulers, and saying to even us like as a church, as leaders and, and rulers and, and people within our communities, you have been called to set people free. You have been called to give grace to people. You have been called to show compassion. You have been called to use your resources to empower other people so that they might experience God's love. 
And they might be set free from, from situations within their own families where there are struggles or with situations in, in oppressive conditions that they're in, maybe in workplaces, whatever. You've been called to help in this. And so to these people, though, here's the message, who are, who are in their hearts crying out to God, the insignificant, the helpless, the poor, the ones who have come to this place of need. They're crying out for a deliverer. And verses 2 through 6 are basically the response that says, I will give you one. I'm going to give you one that you can't imagine. Now, this last week, this last weekend, I was at the men's retreat, and we had about 80-some guys together. And we did something a little differently. Instead of um, someone standing up and speaking for 40 minutes and, and then guys going off and doing stuff, I just basically took about 10, 15 minutes, set up something, and then we went into groups and small groups. And we, what we did is five or six of us in different groups, we would tell how our story, basically. It was a really cool thing. I got to hear the stories of about five or six different people and how God had been at work. And you know what was a common theme? It was so interesting. Every one of them, they told their stories, would tell about a time when either through their own choices or through their own kind of walking away from God or through their own time of desperation, they came to this place. And when they came to this place of brokenness, in humility, in weakness, in poverty of their own wisdom to be able to make a difference, they cried out to God and God met them. And I go, here's the model to the world of us. We should never forget. We are just people who cried out to God. And he was willing to meet us. Now let me tell you who he met you with. That's what Mike is so excited about. Mike is excited because here's what's going to happen. Here's the ruler, verse 2, that he says will come. Micah saw a pre-existent ruler. This is not just some ruler who comes on the scene after just a, a, a few years of life. He says, but you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be a ruler over Israel. So he's making it very clear that this one will come from the line of David like he promised. He will come in the name of David. But here's what you need to notice here. Whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. There is something very important to understand about his origins here. Whenever the Old Testament will actually repeat something twice or especially three times, like holy, 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 it is the way in that time in which they could emphasize something. That's how they put stress to something. They didn't have computers that they italicized and made block letters and underscored. So what you see here is he says twice. I want you to know something whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This ruler has been around a long time. In fact, he's no Johnny-come-lately who's just learning how to deliver. This coming delivery has, deliver has some history to him. This Messiah is the one who actually made up the word deliver. So you can know right now, no matter what place you are in, he has the power to bring deliverance. It's, there's no question about that. In fact, when you read this, you get the idea the translation could actually be phrased like this. A ruler will come who will step out of eternity into time. That's what they were hearing. Now, verse 3 is kind of interesting because whenever we think about a deliverer who's going to come, who steps out of eternity and who knows how to deliver and knows how to do that thing, we get really excited. So he has to say, parentheses, verse 3, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time she was in labor, gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. 
Israel returned from captivity where they were in captivity in Babylon around 586, so about a hundred, few hundred years. And then there will be a time of waiting. He says it is going to be like labor. Now, God sometimes delivers immediately, right? But then there are times where God allows for us to go through the anguish and the labor so that in our character He can begin to form within us the things He needs to do because if our character isn't changed, it makes no difference what He puts out here on the landscape unless the landscape of our heart is rearranged. And so He's saying to these people, I'm going to bring you a deliverer, but I have to do a whole lot of preparation for you as a people so that at a certain point, this people can begin to take this deliverer's message to the whole world. I was talking with Grace, my wife, in the car, and we're just talking about, God has been doing a work in me for so many years of learning how to, to hunger for, more than anything else, the character of Jesus Christ. For years, I have to share with you, I was always, if it's out here, I kept thinking it's out here. If, you know, what I want is out here. And God kept saying, you know, that's okay. There is something out there. I, I know that. But he says, it's not going to be there until it's in here. And I say that even as a church. Sometimes we want to be used by God in ways that are significant and great and grand, etc. And God says, I'd love to use you, but you know what? Not until this is developed in here. Even Jesus... Learned obedience through suffering. And so he says there's a, there's, there's a period of time here. So then he goes on and he says not only is he, a, is he a pre-existent ruler, but if you go to verse 4, the first part of it, he says he's a divine ruler. What Micah saw was the very manifestation of the Almighty God himself, which is implied by the, his origins. In a sense, he's saying God will show up and care for the people through this ruler, the Messiah. And he gives imagery reminiscent of, of God throughout the Old Testament where God comes as a shepherd. And he says this, this coming ruler will stand in the strength of our Lord, in the majesty of the Lord his God. You see the double emphasis again? He's making a point. Not merely will this ruler have a divine authority like many rulers are endowed with, but they will, this one will have the majestic strength and character of God himself because and this ruler appears, God appears through him. You can almost paraphrase his words like this. When you see this Messiah, you will see God. And then he saw a sovereign ruler in verse 4, the last part of it, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. This ruler will be known throughout the world. Prophecy is interesting in the Old Testament, because you see he's prophesying. In, in this book of Micah, he's prophesying to the king Hezekiah, where there's a first fulfillment. And then he's prophesying to a group when they will return from Babylon. And then he's prophesying to a group. God is amazing how he can speak one word to many people, isn't it? And he, he prophesies and he speaks to these people about this Messiah, Jesus, coming. And he's prophesying and he speaks to us as we as a church look for this Messiah who is yet going to come in all full glory and strength and majesty. And will bring security. And so you see this sovereign ruler. Not only this preexistent and this divine ruler and this sovereign ruler. He ends it in verse 5. And he talks about this shepherd ruler. He will stand, as he says, as a shepherd. And you go down to verse 5. 
and he will be their peace. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but my peace is often not in a person. My peace is often in what's happening around me, right? It's amazing how often we don't understand that. We so often just kind of go, if things are going well, and if this is going just the way it should be, and if it, then all of a sudden as you, then you feel peace, and like, God really must love me. God loves you in the midst of the labor that you're going through as you wait for his deliverance. He loves you. And he says, in that process, just rest in that. Let God do the work. Respond to him in obedience. Listen to his voice. Let him do the work in your internal part of your heart and character and rest in the fact that he loves you, not in the basis of what's going around here, because in that he, he's going to be your peace. Because he has a hold of you. Now, I love that message of the ruler. I love that message of the Messiah. But I want to share with you, that's not alone what Micah understood. I think what made this a one-hit wonder is what's in verse 2 particularly these words. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphratha, though you are small, you are just little. You're insignificant. Because there's a whole lot of people there who feel totally insignificant, who felt, who felt oppressed by the system, who, who were people that, that had no sense of hope. They, they had these people whom God had called, and they were actually a part of the people of Israel. They were, they were themselves being oppressed by their own rulers. There was greed. There was a sense of, of God's blessed us, and we will just live in the blessing without any sense of the blessing has been meant to bless others so that the whole world would see how we love. And so you get this picture here at this point, and he's speaking to you and me. If you're in a place of brokenness and humbleness, as I sat and listened to those men in the men's retreat, and each one of them were able to rehearse in times in their life where they have come to a place of brokenness. And they called out to God and they realized, I'm no better than anyone next to me. I'm no better than the person sitting down the row in work or in school or in my neighborhood. I need God. And so you get this picture of, though you are small, he's saying, among the clans of Judah. They were the, the one that David was chosen from was one of the most insignificant. And out of you will come this incredibly wonderful, powerful, glorious, majestic ruler. And here's what he understood. God was using this prophecy not only to teach about his coming and his all-sufficiency of a Savior, but to give hope to those who are humble. People who saw widespread evil and oppression. People who saw the weak, the poor, the helpless being overlooked, people who daily look upon injustice. And Micah's words are these, don't be dazzled by the big and the great and the mighty. Don't set your eyes on that. And to make his point, God says, this little-known prophet from a small town called Moresheth Gath, and he sends him to talk about another little small town called Bethlehem Epaphratha. And what I think is interesting here, and you need to know from Scripture, is the reason he has to use Morasheth and the reason he has to use Epaphratha is because these are small little towns that people would have confused. Because if he would have said just Gath, they would have thought of another bigger town. If they said just Bethlehem, they would have thought of another bigger town. And so this country boy comes from the prestigious, to the prestigious city 
where he stands in Jerusalem with the bright lights and the big buildings and the powerful personages, and he says to people, guess what? You who feel overlooked and insignificant, here's the incredible message. God loves to display his power and majesty through you. And he will. He was calling people to return to a simple trust. He was obviously coming saying there's judgment coming against you leaders. But he was calling people to realize that God always is looking for people who will simply trust him in humble dependence. As Jesus said, blessed are the poor. Theirs is the what? Kingdom. Which means the rule of God. God's rule begins to show up. His power and His authority begins to be marked on those peoples whose hearts are humbly, simply dependent. I was thinking about this and reminded of a, a little fifth grade girl named Amy who was in my first church. I was 22 years old. In my first church in Fox Lake, Illinois, I was going to seminary and I preached there on Sunday mornings. And one Sunday morning after the service, um, she came up to me and I, I noticed her because what amazed me about her was she would go to Sunday school and in fifth grade, without parents there, she went on her own, she would then come to the service. That's not a usual habit for a fifth grader. She came up to me after the service and she'd listened as I would speak. And she told me, she said, you know, I just would love if you would pray for me, my, for my mom. And she said she just um, she needs this love that you've been talking about that Jesus gives. She told me on another occasion when I asked her how are things going. She said, you know, you know, I, I go home, and she said I actually have to hide my Bible behind a book because my mom will ridicule me if she sees me reading it. And then she told me also that it, that she would a lot of times um, not bring her bulletin home because she when she did at times her mom would take it and start to to make jokes about it. And uh, so we prayed. Prayed for about a year and a half, this little fifth grader. Most simple, dependent faith. Little Amy. She prayed. And then one day, to my surprise, because I had met her mom, I went over just to at least meet who this lady was. She seemed like a really nice lady, in fact. I went over one day, Sunday morning. Amy comes in to church with her mom, Susan. I'm thinking, what's, what's up? I let it go. She came every Sunday with her mother through about Christmas time. It was like the first or so, second week of Christmas. And after one of the services, she came forward with her mom. And her mom, in tears, just said to me, I'm going through an incredibly difficult divorce. And I need this Jesus you're talking about. I just go, you know, God's not looking for people with mega talents and lots of degrees and big city savvy. He's not looking for some ingenious businessman, some number one sales rep. He's not looking for some ambitious entrepreneur or some very gifted preacher or anything like that. He's just looking for people who humbly, simply come to him in dependence and say, you know, God, I'm available. And then I think what's really cool about this message as well is not only does God display his power through that simple kind of faith, but he exalts those who are humbly insignificant. This mother, I still get letters from her at Christmas. And this little girl had a huge impact in her life. The reason 
this became a one-hit wonder because Bethlehem was just too small to be included in, in the, the Old Testament list of towns. The towns that were over a thousand in population were listed in the Old Testament. Bethlehem wasn't large enough to be listed. So the thought here is this. Out of the population of this little insignificant town called Bethlehem, out of this small little clan called Judah, there will be a, a, a ruler of such magnitude that every other ruler will pale in significance to him. God is saying, in a sense, to Bethlehem, I'll put you on the map. You who are of little recognition, you will be widely known. Because God just delights in taking that which is humbly insignificant and making it known. I was uh, sharing in the first service about this little town in Minnesota that is known worldwide. Anybody know what it's called? I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Rochester. Why? Mayo Clinic. My understanding, as I had read some things on the Mayo Clinic a number of years ago, is that there was a crisis, a disaster, something had occurred in that town, and some nuns began to pray. And those nuns prayed that God would actually use them to help in that crisis and also to be, in that time in history, in the early 1900s, the medical world was not well developed. There was a lot of quacks. And God took these little prayers of these women and he used them in such a way that they probably never saw the significance of those prayers and how they were fully answered that this little Rochester today is known around the world so I'm sharing this in the first service and one of the dear ladies in her church after the service said to me you know we were in the Middle East just about a few years ago and as we were in the Middle East one of the places we went to is Jordan as we were sitting at one of the tables and they were serving us they asked us where are you from and she said well we're from Minnesota which after they, they had just been finishing their meal and they were taken away and they had shared that with her, she got so excited she came back and spread the table with desserts for free. And, and they said, well, what is this about? She goes, well, our king, you have been so helpful. Rochester, the Mayo Clinic, little Rochester was put on the map because some people said, God, we have something here that we need to touch. Would you, through us, at least touch this? And God says, I love those kind of prayers. I will not only display my power and my strength, but I will exalt anyone who will live in a way where they begin to open their eyes and say, God, this life isn't about me. This life isn't about accumulating resources. This life is not about another adventure. This life is about expressing your love to those that you've placed right in front of me. Whether it's a mother who needs your prayer, whether it's a person at the office who is, is badgering you and you don't like, but you begin to have a conviction in your heart that you need to even pray for, you need even do good. Whatever it looks like, if it's in the community of people who are, are hungry that we help with a food shelf, or if it's down in the city with some people and some young children who are in a community that need to be educated, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter where those things are as long as we're open to what God is calling us to. And as Rich explained, it might be to a hospitality center. Or it may be, as Nicole said, that she was beginning to understand that God had made her for a purpose. And that purpose was, listen to this, it wasn't just to serve in the church. It, it, it was actually, the purpose was to use the gift she has in employment. Because your life, everywhere it goes, is to express this incredible Messiah's love. And God 
delights in expressing his strength through you. And he promises to, whether it's now or at some later point, to exalt you. And I just have to share with you, you have no idea. Like Lincoln didn't, like Micah probably didn't, you have no idea what seems to to just be insignificant in expression of a note of kindness or whatever it is. How incredibly significant that might be in another person's life. So I just want you, as we sing this song, just kind of prayerfully say, God, is there someone around me that you want me to touch? Is my life for something greater that you're calling me to right now? Just be open to that. And some of you are doing this, and God is saying, keep doing it. Just keep doing it. Let's stand together as we close in this song, Jesus Messiah.